Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. And the specific focus of this chapter is that God's power transcends even death. That the stirring story of Daniel chapter 3 intends to bolster the courage of God's people as they face what seems to be overwhelming odds. And so the point of Daniel chapter 3, the title of the sermon is The God Who Delivers His People. The God Who Delivers His People. So when things seem out of control... God is still in control. God delivers his people. Help is on the way for those who belong to the Lord. And so we're going to see that perseverance is possible because as as we saw in Daniel chapter 2, there is one kingdom that's going to endure forever. And so the call for the Christian is to remain steadfast, to be patient, and to long for the return of Christ And the Christian can do all these things because the Christian knows that God's kingdom lasts forever and will endure. And so the call is for us to hold fast because we have a kingdom that will endure forever, which is what we saw last week. And so we can can hold fast in the midst of difficulty because God will deliver his people. Now, I I didn't make this very clear last week, and I don't want to make the same mistake again this week. And that point is simply this, that, that through the life Death and resurrection, followed by by the ascension of Jesus Christ, God has established his kingdom here. The kingdom of God has been established. And that kingdom, it's not of this world, but, but it is a kingdom that is just as real as any kingdom that has ever been in this world. And this kingdom and membership in this kingdom, it's not a natural birthright of everyone indiscriminately. It doesn't come by way of lineage or ethnicity or morality. You can't get in just because your grandparents were in. You can't get in because your parents are in. You can't get in just because you've been to church your whole life. It comes by grace alone. If citizenship to God's kingdom were granted on the basis of merit, it would be an empty kingdom. Can I get an amen? amen? I certainly wouldn't be in it. But it isn't an empty kingdom because its citizenship is based solely on one's relationship with the king of that kingdom. Acceptance into that kingdom comes only by way of faith in Jesus Christ. And faith is that thing which unites us to Christ, to the king of that kingdom. And as I'm looking out, I know many of you are already part of that kingdom. You've you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. You've been transferred into the kingdom of God. And now you are are citizens with with full rights, united to Christ. But I know that some of you aren't yet citizens of that kingdom. You're not members of the kingdom of God. And I want to make clear to you this morning that as we look through the book of Daniel, as as we see the kingdom of God and the benefits of being God's people I want you to know that God is making an appeal through me to you today. And his appeal is to you, come be part of my kingdom. It's as if through me, God is talking directly to you this morning. I don't care what you've been through, you're not here by accident. You're here this morning and God is speaking to you. And he's saying, I have a kingdom that's gonna last forever and I long for you to be part of it. So so come join it. Come find rest 
and security, stability, comfort under the rule of the only perfectly righteous and just and holy King of Kings. And so this morning, Jesus is inviting you. He is calling you. He is commanding you to come to him, to believe in him, to put your trust in him and be part of his people. And so not one of you ought to be able to walk out of this door today not knowing that you are asked and invited and commanded to join the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so if that's not you this morning, if you're not trusting in Jesus, I want you to. And God would have you be part of his kingdom. You don't have to earn it. doesn't matter how bad you've been. doesn't matter how bad you are. You are invited to be part of his people by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. And so hear that invitation this morning. And as we turn to Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 3 is only rightly understood in light of Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2, we saw the frailty, the, the transience of human kingdoms contrasted with the eternal nature of God's kingdom. We saw it in the, cha- the, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, the king's dream in Daniel chapter 2. And when confronted with the reality of the eternal nature of God's kingdom and the temporal nature of human kingdoms, we, like Nebuchadnezzar, when confronted with that reality, we have a decision to make. Are we, one, option A, are we going to double down on our commitment to temporary kingdoms? Are we going to continue plugging our ears and covering our eyes, pretending like we can unmake the reality of things in this world? Are we going to continue to give ourselves to causes and desires and pleasures that are temporary? Are we going to say, yeah, I know that there's an eternal nature, an eternal kingdom, but I don't care. I'd rather just live here and now, which is exactly what we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar doing here in chapter three. Or the other option, which is the better option and the right option, is to recognize the nature of the kingdoms laid before us and decide to give ourselves wholly to the king and kingdom that has come here and now and will last forever. Are we going to pledge our allegiance to the Lord of heaven and hold fast to that commitment regardless of what happens here and now? Knowing that whatever comes our way as as members of this kingdom, as citizens of this kingdom, we are under the sovereign care of the Lord himself who will not ever, ever ultimately hand us over to our enemies. And so this option is to trust the Lord who delivers his people. And that's that's what I want us all to be doing as as we leave here this morning. And that's what we see the, the, the men, the heroes of Daniel 3 doing. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. I'm going to read chapter 3. It's not as long as last week's chapter. Um, but, but I'm going to read from, from verse 1 through verse 30 of Daniel chapter 3. So I think we'll have it on the screen. But, but just follow along as I read, as we, as we encounter the God who delivers his people. Then I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll walk through this chapter. So Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubit, or six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, O nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. 
And what's more, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every type of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 8, therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, you've made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down, you declared, king, whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Well, king, you should know there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered, and he said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, if you're ready when you hear that to fall down and, and worship the image that I've made, what well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered, and they said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden image that you have set up. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 24, then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and they said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and he said, but, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel 
and delivered his servants who trusted in him and who set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I, Nebuchadnezzar, make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll walk through this chapter. Now, Father, I pray that you would instill confidence in us Lord, would you help us as your people to remain steadfast, faithful, loyal, and place our allegiance wholly in Christ in your kingdom. We're thankful that you are a God who delivers us, your people. Therefore, we always have hope. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, so here's, here's how we're going to do things this morning. We're going to walk through, there's, there's four points. We're going to walk through these quickly. And then at the end, we're going to save all the, the points of application. And there's four at the end that we'll, we'll come to. Uh, but we're going to walk quickly through. Because this is a familiar story, uh, we, there, there are not too many issues or questions here. But, but it's still worth us spending our time walking through these, these different sections. And so the outline is, is as follows. Then verses 1 through 7, we're going to see the setting. The setting here in chapter 3. And then second, verses 8 through 18, we'll see the stand. The stand that, that these three men make. Then thirdly, verses 19 through 23, we'll see the sentencing. So see where where Nebuchadnezzar makes his sentence, declares his verdict. And then finally, verses 24 through 30, we'll see the salvation that the Lord works, the deliverance that these men experience. Okay, so those are our four sections. And so let's let's work through those one at a time. So looking there first at the setting, verses 1 through 7. And now immediately as as we pick up verse 1, It is quite a contrast to where we found Nebuchadnezzar last week at the end of chapter 2. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar resisted God's revelation. The image that he commissioned symbolized his desire that no kingdom should destroy his, not even the kingdom of God. So if you remember, at the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he's scared. He says, what's what's this dream about? What's my vision? Daniel reveals, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, here's your dream. You're a temporary kingdom. Yes, you're a head of gold, but there's going to be an inferior kingdom after you that's going to conquer you. Then there's an inferior kingdom that's going to conquer that and conquer that. And so Nebuchadnezzar receives that revelation and to, to follow up with that, he says, okay, I know what you said. I know what my dream was, but I'm actually going to build a statue that's gold from head to toe, and it's going to be all me. Right? So what a contrast. At the end of chapter 2, he says, oh, oh, bless the God. Bless the God who, who blessed uh, Daniel with this wisdom. But now he says, actually, I forgot about that God. I'm the only God that matters here, and I'm going to have a kingdom that lasts forever. It's as if he heard the interpretation interpretation. He said, I can actually fix that. And so we see right at the beginning of chapter three, he sets up this gold statue. It's 90 feet tall. It's nine feet wide. It is enormous. And Nebuchadnezzar is the one who has set this up. The ESV in those verses, just one through seven, it's six times the the phrase is repeated, the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up, the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up, the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. There's no question as to who's behind this. Nebuchadnezzar has this statue erected. And not only does he have it built, he has an elaborate dedication ceremony. And so that all the people, the who's who of, of Babylon are coming and so everyone is there. And then every, when everyone's there, there's this, this announcement made, this, this command, a mandate, if you will. And he says, through this, through this person announcing, the herald says, here's what you're going to do, all peoples, 
nations and languages, when you hear the sound of all the instruments, when you hear pomp and circumstance, when you hear the music, all you have to do is fall down and worship the golden image that's been set up. That's it. That, that's, that's the law for all the people of Babylon. It's a requirement for all the peoples and nations and languages. And so this is a, a clearly a political demand, but, but we can't separate this, this political demand from its religious demand. Right? It's clearly the command of worship. Not only has a statue been set up, but, but you must worship Nebuchadnezzar himself. You must worship this statue. There's going to be music and celebration. You are going to give yourself to this statue. You're to worship. And as we'll see, there's almost, there's, there's almost no one in Babylon who has any problem with this command. Blind obedience is offered by almost everyone in Babylon. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised in a, in a polytheistic culture, one more object of worship isn't a big deal, especially recognizing that the consequence The consequence for not obeying there in verse 6 is whoever doesn't do this, whoever doesn't fall down in worship is going to immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And almost all of Babylon, no one one has an issue. They they, they comply willingly, no question. But it's significant, and this this consequence is significant because we know from chapters 1 and chapter 2 that there are four specific men in Babylon who are going to have a problem with this command. We know the main characters, and we know that this is going to be a, a point of conflict with them. So let's look at their response there. We, we see how they respond, beginning there in verse 8. So we see the stand that these three men make, of the stand of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, so we have the setting established. Here's, here, you've got to worship, and if you don't, you're going to be killed. And then verse 8, we, we assume that, that, that these, these men could go on without being confronted with their civil disobedience until there's the antagonist introduced there in verse 8. Certain Chaldeans, who, who they see these Jewish people in authority, and they say, that's not right. We're Chaldeans, they're Jews. And so they maliciously accuse the Jews. They're, they're snitches in their day. They come to Nebuchadnezzar and they remind him of his command. Don't, oh king, live forever. Don't you remember that, that, that decree that you issued? Don't you remember the consequence? Well, let me just tell you, there's, there's three men who you appointed, who aren't, they, don't, they don't care about what you said. They refuse to obey your command. And so obviously we, we know a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar. This isn't going to be welcome news. So not surprisingly, it infuriates the king. And so he brings them in to confront them, and he calls them in to give an account. Now, it seems as though Nebuchadnezzar is, is kind of like the parent who says, if you do that again, you're, you're going to have this consequence. Then child immediately does it again. They say, I'll give you one more chance, right? That, that's, that's parenting, right? That, that's that's in, the, in the heat of the battle. It seems as though that, that's similar to what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's made this declaration, but he knows who these Jews are. She said, okay, okay, there must be some mistake. If given another chance, surely they will obey. And so he says, he, he, he brings them in and calls them to give an account. Is it true, you guys, that, that you don't do what I've asked you to do, what I've commanded you to do? He doesn't even give them a chance to respond. He immediately, verse 15, says, now, now if you're ready, we've got all the instruments here, we'll play the music, and if you're ready, you can, you can just do what you have to do. So just do it. They'll play. But, but if you don't, let me just remind you of, of the consequence. You're going to be thrown immediately into a burning, fiery furnace. And so the fork in the road has come for these three Jewish men in Babylon. As they stand before the king, they are asked really three questions. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, so is it true that you haven't worshipped 
the golden statue like you've been commanded to, if given another, given another chance, will you do it now? And if not, who's going to save you from the consequence that I've declared? Those are kind of the three questions. The last one being the most significant because he's basically saying, no one can challenge me. Who's the God who's going to save you? No one is what he's saying. And so those are the three questions. And so after these questions, verses 16 through 18, the, the response of these three, it, it's this moment of truth. How are they going to respond? And in the response, we see the loyalty of these men to the Lord and his kingdom. And so they answer the king, verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer in this matter. In other words, we have no defense. You know what we have not done. We haven't done it. We don't, we don't have to tell you that. You know that. We, we don't bow down and worship as you've commanded us to. Verse 17, if this be so, meaning if, if you have to throw us in the fire, let it be. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand. Verse 18, but if not, you ought to know, Nebuchadnezzar, if he doesn't deliver us, if we die in the fire, you should know we're not going to serve you. We're not going to bow to the image that you've set up. It's not an option for us. We will die. Send us to the fire. Because we'd rather die loyal to the Lord than, than worship you and forsake the Lord. So, so let, let us die. Kill us. King, you're not going to win this one. Our stand is firm. And so in terms of a God who can deliver, they are telling Nebuchadnezzar, we know that our God's able. We know God is able. They know that he can. They just don't know if he will. He can, but he might not. Nevertheless, they want him to know we're not going to bow. This is faithfulness. This is obedience. And, and as we read the stand of these three men, one commentator writes, if there's any true faith in our own hearts, we will want to stand up and cheer as we read these words. In the last analysis, these friends' faith was not in their deliverance, but in their God. Notice in their minds, the priority isn't deliverance. They don't say, well, well, we got a great spot in Babylon. We can influence Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe we should just fudge this one little issue and, and we can still influence. That, that, they, don't, they don't care about being delivered. They, the line has been drawn and they say, we don't care about being delivered. We're gonna be faithful to the Lord. And he may deliver us, but, but if he doesn't, we're not gonna be unfaithful to him. They prioritize faithfulness and they stake their lives on a call of obedience, which is important because these three men of faith would not have regarded death in the flames to be a failure of faith. If they would have been burned up in the furnace, they wouldn't have failed. Their faith wouldn't have been too weak. They would have simply said, well, the Lord decided not to deliver us. He delivered us through our suffering. And so the three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they make their stand. They resolve to resign themselves to God's will. And so our attention then shifts back to Nebuchadnezzar. How is he going to respond? Look there at verse, verses 19 through 23, the sentencing. Not surprisingly, right? This, this king has given another chance to these three men, and they refuse him again. And so it says very, uh, very illustratively that the king is now filled with fury. And his face is changed towards these three. He is angry. He's hot. He can't believe what's just happened. And so in his mind, the, the matter has been settled. In his anger, he says, not only are we going to throw him in a fiery furnace, but we're going to heat it seven times more than it's usually heated, as if uh, a fiery furnace isn't enough. And his anger is being overflowing. He said, I'm, going to just, I'm just going to do this because I can. And he, in fact, kills some of his own people in, in the overflows of his anger. But Nebuchadnezzar, 
decides, I'm gonna get glory over any other gods and I'm gonna show that my hand is strong and that when I declare guilty, no God can, can deliver from my hand. That's what he wants to do here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're bound, they're thrown into the furnace. And we're told, verse 22, collateral damage, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, that, that the men who actually deliver them into the flame are killed. And so these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. They've stood their ground, they've obeyed the Lord, they've remained faithful, and they've accepted their consequence of disobedience. They've been thrown into the fire. And at this point, you've got to think, they, they're recognizing, okay, the Lord isn't going to deliver us from this, but that's okay, because we've been faithful. I don't, I don't think as they're going in, they're saying, okay, Lord, now's the time for you to, to deliver us from the fire. I think by, when, they're, when they're bound in sin, I think, like, okay, Lord, he's not going to deliver us. And so they go into the, into the fire, which leads to what, what, what happens next, the salvation, the deliverance, verses 24 through 30. Because we're familiar with this story, because we just read the chapter, we know what happens. Nebuchadnezzar, we don't know how long, the, the, the time between verse 23 and verse 24 but at some point, Nebuchadnezzar, he's astonished. And so, so for, for some way, Nebuchadnezzar, maybe there's a window, a door, some way that he can see into the furnace, and he's astonished. There's something that he sees that's confusing him. So he seeks his counselors, and he asks them, how, how many did we throw into the fire? Was it, what is it, wasn't it just three people? I think it was three, but, but, but I, I, can, I can swear that I see four people in there. The men, they say, no, 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 there's three of them. He says, but I see four, and the, the fourth one we see in verse 25 has the appearance like a son of the gods. And so he knows the three that he saw three, but there's a fourth one, and he says that this fourth one has the appearance like a son of the gods. Now, we, we, we certainly shouldn't uh, va- validate Nebuchadnezzar's interpretation of, of things supernatural, right? He, he isn't a good guide here, so, so we shouldn't put too much uh, credit in his words and what he describes, and so a lot, a, lot of, a lot of people will talk about, well, who is this fourth person? Um, who, what's the identity here? Now, I don't think this is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Some people believe that, that this is Christ pre-incarnate. I don't think that's the case. There's nothing in the chapter itself that suggests that. Neither is there anything in the New Testament that refers to this passage that would suggest that Jesus is the fourth man. I could be wrong, but I simply think... That, that, that this fourth messenger is, is an angel, a supernatural being who was sent by God to, to manifest God's protecting and persevering presence in this unique situation. I think, I think he is God's presence manifested in the fiery furnace so that when Nebuchadnezzar sees, he says, there's someone else, another divine being at work in this situation. And I think for, for the three men, they can recognize the Lord has delivered us. He sent his messenger to us. He is the angel, the messenger sent to protect us. We'll see more about that in a, a second. But, but I think it's simply the identity. Don't get lost in identifying who this is. The point is that the Lord delivers his people. And there's a, a fourth one in there that, that when they're called out, the fourth one's gone. So just as, as, as immediately as, as this fourth man appears, he appears to disappear. And so... so Nebuchadnezzar is concerned because there's four men and not three, but the most concerning thing, I think, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind is that he sees, in verse 25, he sees four men walking around in the midst of the fire, unbound. So they went inbound, they're unbound now, but they're just walking around in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. So not only is there four of them, but, but they're unaffected. The, the fire, his fire, his seven times hotter fire has been rendered ineffective. Ineffective. 
They're not, they're not phased by it. These men, they're no longer bound, but they're neither hurt or even touched by the fire. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls them out. Obviously, this isn't working, so he calls them out. And upon their exit, everyone surrounding Nebuchadnezzar sees that the fire had, not even, had no power over the bodies of these men. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. I mean, there's no other explanation. The hair on their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. This is a miracle. And if you're like me, I thought about this. When, when I was a kid, we, we'd go to, to restaurants and there's a smoking section and a non-smoking section. We always say we have to go non-smoking because if we go smoking, we'll have to all wash our clothes because it's going to smell like smoke. Well, these men were in the midst of fire and, and their clothes, are, they don't even smell like it. And so this is supernatural. They've been miraculously delivered. And it's, it's amazing, actually, that in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 2 and 3, you can write this down, I'm going to read it, but in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah talks to those who are in exile and the promise that Isaiah makes, that the Lord makes through Isaiah to those who are exiled, fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name, you're mine. When you pass through waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And listen to what else he promises. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And so this is clearly an Old Testament fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. It's Isaiah 43, verses two and three specifically. But, but again, these men had experienced the deliverance that comes from the covenant love of the Lord. Notice he said, I'm the Lord your God. I've, I'm your savior. I love you. And so these men were cared for and delivered by the God who had, had redeemed them, delivers them. And it's upon this miraculous deliverance that Nebuchadnezzar finds himself in a similar situation as he did back at the end of chapter two. So chapter 2, he saw the, the supernatural revelation of wisdom where Daniel says, this is not only the interpretation of a dream, but here's the dream and here's what it means. So he said, wow, the God of Daniel is something. Well, now he's seen another mighty display of God's power. And notice his response, verse 28. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has set up this angel, or who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any other gods, except their own God. So, so Nebuchadnezzar clearly sees what's happened. He recognizes that, that their God, the one true God, has delivered them. But notice what his decree is. Therefore, I make a decree. Not every people, nation, and language must worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That would have been the right response, right? There is only one God, and we must all worship them. That's not his decree. Instead, he says, anyone who, who speaks anything against their God is going to be torn limb from limb. Right, so it's, maybe he thinks, well, this furnace didn't work. We've got to have another consequence. But again, he still doesn't get it. Nebuchadnezzar still isn't there. He's not humbled at the thought of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's still their God. And it's still, okay, you can, you can worship him and other people can, cannot say anything bad about him. But he still doesn't humble himself and worship the one true God. He recognizes, again, the validity of this God and orders that this God must be allowed to be worshiped in Babylon, but he still doesn't get it. And in fact, next week we'll see Maybe he's going to get it. The Lord's going to, going to do something else in the life of Nebuchadnezzar next week in chapter 4. But, but let me close here. We, we've got four applications. I just want to run through. There, there's so many things from this narrative that could be said, but I just want to point to a few of them. And, and there, there aren't slides here, so you're going to have to just write them down or follow along as, as I just run through them. Just, just four, four points of application here. First, actually, I think there's only three. Three. 
First point of application, a lesson from Nebuchadnezzar. So a lesson from Nebuchadnezzar, I think we see from Nebuchadnezzar and, and, ha- and his state at the beginning of the chapter is a lesson for us. One commentator calls this the spiritual diversion versus true conversion. So diversion versus conversion. And that's the lesson to be learned from Nebuchadnezzar. The contrast between the end of Daniel 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 is astounding. And so it seems that he, he recognizes the one true God, but then the beginning of chapter 3 he says, but worship me. And so it's like he, he's just spiritually diverted. He's like, oh yeah, that, that's a good God, but he's not truly converted. So, so there's this wishy-washy nature of Nebuchadnezzar. And I think we see this dynamic at work in our world today. I think we see this dynamic at work in our own lives. In fact, the parable of Jesus, the, the, the sowing of the seed, the different soils from Mark 4. So, so we are surrounded with people. Maybe you grew up with them. Maybe they're kids. Maybe your grandkids. Maybe they're your neighbors. Maybe it's you. But you grow up in church, or, or you hear, you meet someone, you have a conversation, or you read the Bible, and you think, yes, I, I love that youth pastor. I believe what he's saying. I know that I should live for God. And, and the seed takes root, and it starts to produce fruit. You receive it with joy. But then after a period of time, after that apparent reception, the growth ends, and, and your, your plant is choked out by cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things. You, you just get busy and, and, it, and you, the plant dies. And you're like, oh yeah, I remember that time. That was so crazy back then when I believed in God, when I went to church, when, when I read my Bible, when I prayed. Don't be deceived. There's such thing as, as spiritual diversion. It's just, just playing with the things of God. That will not last. Heed the warning of Nebuchadnezzar's failure to humble himself and turn completely to the worship of the Lord. If that's you, what, what's hindering you? What's hindering you from, from allegiance to the Lord and, and committing yourself wholly to him? Because you can, you can spend your entire life playing with God and die and meet him and be cast away from him. Don't play with the things of God. God wants all of you. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants your emotions. He wants your hobbies. He wants your minds. He wants all of you. And he, he has done what is required. He sent his son so that you might be redeemed and, and reborn, regenerated, given a new heart and new desires. And he's given you his Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you. He's done what is required. You have no excuse. What's the hindrance for you? Don't play. Don't be Nebuchadnezzar. There's a God who made you, who calls you to worship him. And short of complete worship, you will not be welcomed by him in the end. And so that's a lesson to be learned from Nebuchadnezzar. Second, a lesson in worship. I think we see here, we we see from chapter 3 that the human heart is made to worship. You are a worshiper. People at the beach today, people camping today, people at home waiting for football games to start, people at home in their beds. Every single person on this planet is a worshiper. The issue isn't whether you worship or not. That's not the issue. The issue is who or what you worship. The human heart is a worshiping heart. We were made that way. And so you are worshiping something. I am worshiping something. The human heart is always going to direct its affections and its allegiances towards, towards something. And the lesson here from Daniel chapter 3 is that there is one object, there is one person who is worthy of our worship, and that is the Lord God. He has no equal, he has no rivals. He is the one true God. And so, so, so we see that there is one God who is holy, holy, holy. 
who is worthy of our worship. And as we pursue worship in any lesser objects, we will lack satisfaction. We will lack joy. We will lack fulfillment. And so there's one true God worthy of our worship, yet the world is filled with idols. I'm not talking about idols in terms of statues, but idols in terms of objects of worship. There's modern idolatry that is rampant. The human heart, even the Christian heart, struggles with worshiping other gods, with going out, going after other objects to satisfy. Our hearts, as John Calvin once said, are idol factories. We, we produce idols and they come from our own heart. We, we create things that, that we think will satisfy and we worship them. And the idols of the human heart are manifested in, in various ways and, and really it's unique for every single individual. I mean, if you think about just a, 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 the, a working definition, an idol is simply something that controls your actions, something that controls you. So, so you arrange your life to satisfy or give worship to your idol. And it's, it can be anything Addiction. Some of you are, are trapped in addictions and you order your life, how you spend your evenings, how you spend your mornings, or how you spend your money. You're addicted and, and you can't get enough of something. And so that controls your life. So you find yourself doing things you never would have thought you would ever do. That's an idol. And you give yourself to that thinking, this is going to satisfy. And then eventually, sometimes over and over and over, you realize this doesn't satisfy. I'm worthless. What am I doing? That's an idol. Maybe an idol is, is what others think about you. And so you, you control your life. So where you shop or what you post on social media or, or how you respond to certain things, you, you're always thinking, how are they gonna think about me? How, how do I wanna be perceived? And so you arrange your life, you control your actions so that other people think about you as a certain way. We see this with bumper stickers. Like a bumper sticker tells people what you want them to think about you. doesn't matter if you really like it or not. Whether you believe it, it's like, I, this is a symbol so that you think I'm a certain type of person, whether political, whether religious, whether sports teams, right? We want other people to think about us in a certain way. Maybe it's relationships. You think, if I could just have this certain relationship, then I would be satisfied. And so marriage after marriage after marriage is ruined because you're like, no, no, this isn't what I thought it would be. My perfect match is out there. So, so if I can just find the right person, then I'll, then I'll be satisfied. That's an, that's an idol. That's a relationship. No relationship is going to satisfy in the way you think. Maybe it's your finances. You, you, you give yourself all in to, to some new thing or some job or some career or some, some side thing. You think, I just need more money because then I wouldn't be anxious about this. Or then I, I could fix these projects around the house, or then I could provide for my kids or grandkids. Again, this can be an idol, political identity. The list can go on and on, but at the bottom of it all, by and large, is the idol of self, right? We, we, we want to be on the throne of our own lives. And so we see from Daniel chapter 3, it's a lesson in worship. There's one object of worship that will never lack coming through that will always satisfy and that is the Lord himself one commentator says as Christians we may not bow to this idol in any of its manifestations our only worship is to be directed to the one and only true and full image of God Jesus Christ ultimately then 
The second commandment, which was the heart of these three friends' resistance to idolatry at Nebuchadnezzar, can be fulfilled. So we worship God alone. That's the second commandment. That's what was driving these three friends. That's what drives the Christian today. Third, there are four. I'm sorry. I missed one. Third, a lesson in obedience. These three men stand forth as an example for us. They decided in their hearts that the worship of God was never going to be compromised. And when they had, when they had drawn that line in the sand, when they had put that stake in the ground, disobedience to Nebuchadnezzar was easy. Okay, you can kill us. We're not going to worship you. We are worshiping the Lord. Come what may, no matter what the cost. And so we learn a lesson in obedience. When, when you decide that you're going to obey and worship the Lord alone, dis, disobedience to others is easy. Amer, American Christians are abnormal in this sense. We don't really know what it's like to, to have this at stake in our decision to worship the Lord alone. But God's people have always faced this type of obedience. I mean, Acts 5, Peter declares the high priest, right? When they're arrested and then they're released, they say, don't, don't go speak in his name anymore. Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. And we're going to keep speaking this name because that, that's, that's what we're called to do. Paul, on trial for his life, doesn't shrink back before Felix or, or the higher authorities. And church history is filled with stories of martyrs who stood firm in their faith and, and obeyed to the point of death and said, I'm not going to compromise this. I'm not going to worship this. I'm not going to disobey God in this way. And so lesson, lesson in obedience is simply that costly obedience is the mark of the Christian. The call to follow Christ is a call to die to self and take up our cross. And I just wonder how often we here in this country consider that. Do you understand your, your following Jesus as costly? Is there, is there loss for you? What's your cost? What's my cost? What does allegiance look like for me? I think this is where the fourth, fourth member is really significant in the, in the furnace. God's presence is in the midst of suffering. So we can obey costly. We can suffer because God is not going to abandon us in the fire. So, so we can suffer willingly, gladly, hopefully, because God is with us. So may we be obedient, even if it costs us our lives, like the three men here in Daniel 3. And then finally, last application, a lesson in God's way of de- deliverance. A lesson in God's way of deliverance. So we ought to recognize that here in Daniel 3, this isn't the pattern. Yes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered. They were spared from the flames. God delivered them, saved them physically. But the lesson isn't, if you obey, you're not going to suffer. It's not the pattern. It's a token here, but it's not a pattern I mean, listen to Hebrews 11. This is a, another place in the New Testament that, is refer, that refers to these three men. The, the, the Hebrews 11, this chapter that, that recounts all of these instances of faith. And listen, listen to this, 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 this listing out of what faith looked like. And what more shall I say? For time would prevent me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire. There's our three. Right? Here's faith. It's victorious faith. Escaped the edge of the sword. Whose, whose faith, by faith they are made strong out of weakness. Who became mighty in war. Who put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Right? So that, that's a list. That's half of the hall of faith there. But he continues without even skipping a, a breath. Some, by faith, were tortured, 
refusing to accept relief so that they might rise again to better life. Others suffered mockings. Others were flogged and even chains and imprisonment. Some by faith were stoned. They were sawn in half. They were killed with the sword. They went around this this world in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute. They were afflicted. They were mistreated. Do you see the contrast? Faith can lead to one. Faith, same faith can lead to the other. That's the lesson in how God delivers. He doesn't do it the same way every time. And so we don't bank on this because many of our brothers and sisters are, are going through this. A life of faith doesn't guarantee a life free from suffering. A life of faith entrusts oneself to God who's able to deliver, but who may not deliver here and now. And that's okay. You may suffer physically your entire life and it'll be really hard, really painful, but it'll be over. You will be delivered. You'll be raised to resurrection life, better life, and it'll be all worth it. And the the unfading glory of what's to come will make this present suffering meaningless, fleeting. And so you can persevere. You will be delivered. The lesson to be learned is that entrusting oneself to the Lord leads to deliverance, but it leads to deliverance in God's time and not ours. And so the truth remains, the Lord will deliver his people. Sometimes it's from suffering, sometimes it's through suffering, but it always comes. And so the pattern isn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The pattern is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think that we will be spared from walking the path that our Savior had to walk? His obedience, where did that lead him? It led him to the cross. It led him to the grave. But he wasn't abandoned. He was raised victorious, ascended at the right hand of the Father. He was was delivered from death, conquered death. And that's the pattern. We have hope because our Lord conquered death and was delivered. We too can follow his path. And so in the words of 1 Peter chapter 5, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that come upon you. Don't be surprised. It's not abnormal. We're simply following the path that our Savior walked. And we can do it. We can persevere. Let's, Let's pray as we close.